Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And we are back with more of the worst cars of all time. So in our last episode, we talked about cars like the SV1 and the DeLorean DMC-12. I like to think of those as like steps, cousins or something. Uh, we talked about the Trabant. We talked about the Yugo. And now we're going to talk about a lot of other cars that fall onto worst cars lists. And just as a reminder, in case you haven't listened to the last episode, I did not pick these cars out of thin air. These are not the cars that Jonathan thinks are the worst of all time. Instead, I looked at a bunch of different lists that had, you know, a title similar to the worst cars of all time. And then I curated a few of those for y'all. Now, some of these cars were noted for their atrocious performance on the road. Like they were just terrible to drive. Others were just the wrong design at the wrong time. It wasn't necessarily that it was a, you know, a bad car, but that it had either missed its window or it came out at just the wrong era. Uh, a few of these cars were such a bad idea that they would end up bringing down an entire company. And I should add that nearly all of them have their own fans. Like, there are people who will swear that one of these cars is the worst of all time, and other people who will say, you're full of it. So there are people who love these cars because the cars are bad. So there's some people who love them because they're not good cars. There are also people who genuinely love these cars and who will defend to the end of time that they are actually good cars. And the best thing to do when you encounter one of those people is you smile, you nod, and find the closest exit. All right, here we go. Now, first off, we're going to talk about an eccentric engineer. This is going to be kind of tied into our last cars on this list because I'm starting and ending with a really weird one. Uh, the engineer was Milton Othello Reeves. He and his brother Marshall had done a lot of pioneering work in the field of variable speed transmissions and early motor vehicles at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. Uh, so they were making things that would become instrumental in uh, in automotives as well as other types of engines. In fact, I think the first variable transmission that uh, Milton worked on was for a, a saw, not even a, a car. But yeah, they did some genuinely important work in the field of automotive engineering. Uh, but then Milton made a car in 1911 that was a real head-scratcher. Uh, I guess he was looking at the common wisdom of the day, which is that four wheels for a car is a pretty good idea. And Reeves decided that if four wheels is a good idea, then more wheels is probably a great idea. Uh, so he would go a totally different route than Reliant. If you remember from our last episode, Reliant made the three-wheeled Robin. Well, <laughs> Reeves would go the opposite direction. He didn't want to take wheels away. He wanted to add more of them. Specifically, Reeves took an existing 1910 car from the Overland Automobile Company. So he took a car that had four wheels, just a normal vehicle. This was back when very few people actually owned cars. Most drivers were, you know, these wealthy folks who 
belonged to pretty exclusive driving clubs and they would spend their days racing each other and wrecking cars while everybody else was getting around, you know, on their feet or on horse or whatever. Well, Reeves then decided to take this uh, Overland Automobile Company car and perform a real Dr. Frankenstein job on it, and he added two additional axles to the vehicle, uh, and that increased the number of wheels to eight. So you had four on each side. You had four wheels in the front and four wheels in the back. So in other words, just imagine a normal car, and then imagine putting you know, an axle with two wheels in front of the front wheels and an axle with two wheels behind the rear wheels and calling it a new car. And he called his the Octo Auto and he brought it to the Indianapolis 500 to show it off. Uh, this sucker was more than 20 feet long. That was a long, long car for the time. And let me be fair, some of the things that Milton was trying to solve were pretty tricky in the early 20th century. For one thing, early automobiles didn't have a very smooth ride at all. It was pretty jarring. Like, you know, you would hear people call them things like tooth rattlers and stuff because you would be shaken up so much. And roads were often unpaved. And the suspension that most cars used, plus the hard tires that they were using before we got to pneumatic tires, all of that meant that you really felt every single bump in the road. So Milton's design distributed shock more effectively than four-wheeled cars could, and thus it would provide you with a more comfortable ride as you went down the road. It's just, this was a, a more comfortable ride in a car that looked really weird and was much longer than other vehicles at that same time. So, you know, there was a trade-off there. Well, the design really was odd. The, uh, the front four wheels were steerable, and so were the rearmost set of wheels. So the four wheels in the front and the last two wheels in the back were all steerable. The other set of rear wheels, you know, the ones that are a little further up, the first set of rear wheels, they're the ones that received power from the car's drivetrain. So this was a rear wheel drive car, just not the rearmost wheels. So... <laughs> It's also what you could call an 8x2 drive system, I guess. But Reeves' design meant that the vehicle was pretty complicated to operate, and it would also be incredibly expensive to manufacture. In fact, the Octo Auto would end up costing twice as much as the Overland that served as the core of the vehicle. I saw one resource that suggested the car would come in at around $100,000 if you adjusted for inflation, which is a big old yowza. Understandably, Reeves didn't get any orders for his car, though at least one journalist reported that a ride in the Octo Auto was pretty smooth, actually. Like, it, it, it worked. It just wasn't practical, and it was really expensive. Reeves did go back to the drawing board, and he returned later with a car that only had six wheels, but that one also failed to <clears throat> gain traction. And he also built a motorcycle called the Big Seven, because that's how many people could ride the motorcycle at the same time. Seven people. Yeah, Reeves had a thing for the weird, I guess. Now, while the Octo Auto and the Sexto Auto ended up being nothing more than curiosities with insanely high price tags, Reeves did make several legit important contributions in automotive engineering. In fact, uh, the patent office granted him more than 100 patents in his lifetime. He died in 1925 at the age of 60. Next, 
Let's talk about a vehicle that shows up on tons of worst cars lists. I give you, dear listeners, the Pontiac Aztec. That's spelled A-Z-T-E-K. So it's not spelled the same way as the colonist term for the, you know, the Kulwa Mexica uh, people. That different spelling. Years before the tragic character of Walter White would, you know, putter around in a Pontiac Aztec on Breaking Bad, this vehicle would become something of a punchline in the automotive world. Pontiac used to be a brand under General Motors, and it was a companion make that complemented another GM brand of cars called Oakland. If you listen to my history of General Motors, you heard me talk about this. Uh, General Motors had different lines of cars, and each line of cars was marketed toward a different section of the population. Generally, we're talking about, you know, different uh, uh, wealth levels, right? Like some of the cars were just more expensive and they all belonged to one brand. Well, Pontiac was kind of a, a companion brand to Oakland, so it was meant to be adjacent to it to sort of fill in the gap. However, Pontiac would prove to be more successful than Oakland, and GM would ultimately sunset the Oakland line but keep Pontiac around for a while. However, Pontiac itself would later face extinction by 2010. Uh, and again, you can tune into my episodes about General Motors to hear more about that story. But the Aztec, as it turns out, would play a part in Pontiac's uh, receiving a, a bad rep and, and kind of fading away. So in the 1990s, the sports utility vehicle, or SUV, had really exploded in America. It really gained in popularity. So the classic SUV combines elements of passenger cars, which typically stick to stuff like, you know, roads and highways, and they combine that with off-road vehicles, you know, like four-wheel drive trucks. As such, your typical SUV has a truck chassis as sort of the skeleton, and usually a, a, a truck-style engine, something that has a lot of power to it. And it also includes stuff like greater ground clearance, you know, stuff that you would typically see with a truck. I'm sure you all know this, but it helps to define terms. And inside, you would have a, a few more comforts that you would expect in a car. Well, GM saw a potential market emerge, uh, one that would model itself after the SUV, but would rely on something more akin to a passenger car chassis. So you could have elements of SUV in the design, but you would also have even more of the comforts of a passenger car in the vehicle. Later, we would use the term crossover vehicle to describe this kind of car slash SUV. So SUVs are the truck version of this sort of thing. Crossovers are the car version. So if we were to think of this as a, as a spectrum, you would say car, crossover, SUV, truck. The Aztec was sort of a, a forerunner of crossover vehicles, so it was a hint of what was to come later. By most accounts, folks liked the concept art for the Aztec, which gave it a very SUV kind of look. GM showed off the concept in 1999, had a pretty good reception. Unfortunately, behind the scenes at the company, things were a little bit different from that concept because there were a lot of cooks in the Aztec kitchen. Too many cooks, you might say. It takes a lot to make a stew. Anyway, Tom Peters led the design of the Aztec, and he gave it a look that was simultaneously a little bit boxy in places and weirdly aggressive in others. 
And the style received a lot of, well, let's call it constructive criticism. Apparently, part of the reason for the design was that GM management decided the Aztec should use the same basic platform elements as the company's lines of minivans, which meant the shape of the vehicle was going to be very different from what Peters had originally envisioned. It was going to be taller, for one thing, and more boxy. So that constrained Peters in his attempts to make an attractive SUV-style vehicle. As car and driver's Daniel Pund puts it, quote, the production Aztec, powered by the corporate 3.4-liter V6 and with a decidedly on-road-focused optional all-wheel drive system, combined the performance, excitement, and off-road capability of a minivan with the lesser practicality of a chopped minivan. End quote. Sick burn. Supposedly, when GM unveiled the 2001 Aztec at an auto show, it made the audience gasp. Not out of admiration, I might add. And GM had hired a bunch of people to make a quote-unquote mosh pit in front of the stage to hype up the unveiling. I cannot bring myself to look for a video of this because it sounds like I would cringe myself out of existence. I'm told there was even a point where the executive crowd-surfed. I... Can't. The Aztec was reviled. It was also pretty expensive, and so it did not sell well. GM would pull the plug on the Aztec production in 2005, and Pontiac itself would shuffle off a few years later. In our last episode, I talked about the emergence of the subcompact classification of cars here in the United States. Uh, That was going on in the early 1970s, and it was partly in response to rising oil prices, though those would really hit a little bit later uh, after the subcompacts had already started to show up. It was also partly due to the fact that American car prices were on the rise and Americans were turning to cheaper imported cars and that was scary to American car manufacturers. I mentioned that the Ford Pinto, one of the most ridiculed cars of all time, came out during this era. Well, so did our next car, the AMC Gremlin. The AMC part refers to the American Motor Company, sometimes shortened just down to American Motors. And I should probably do a full episode about that company at some point, because it did play an interesting role in the history of the American automotive industry. But, you know, just to give you all a spoiler, AMC no longer exists as an independent company as it was absorbed into other companies in the 70s and 80s. But before all that happened, AMC produced The Gremlin. And just the whole process is kind of the stuff of legend. Supposedly, Dick Teague, who was the chief designer at AMC, sketched out the first design for the Gremlin on a barf bag while flying on Northwest Orient Airlines. I don't know if that's true. That's what I've seen. Also, the company unveiled the Gremlin on April 1st, a.k.a. April Fool's Day. That part is true. But then there's also the obvious that we have to address, you know, the elephant in the room, because the word gremlin refers to these mythical creatures who would be said to be responsible for mechanical failures, particularly in military equipment during wartime. So if a jeep were to break down, it was the fault of gremlins. And then we have a car company that decides to use that word as a name for a car, The Gremlin was actually a modified version of a compact car that AMC had made uh, for the 1970 model year. That car was called the Hornet, 
And here's the scoop. AMC was facing big competition from much larger car companies like GM and Ford. They were dominating the the market. And those companies had already announced that they were starting to make subcompact cars. So AMC wasn't really positioned to take on the challenge of designing an all-new type of vehicle. So instead, the executives made the decision to take the compact Hornet and to make some changes to create a new subcompact car. So the Hornet had a wheelbase of 108 inches. The Gremlin would have a shorter one at 96 inches. The Hornet tapered off in the back with your standard trunk design. The Gremlin would be slashed back into kind of a hatchback appearance, making it look stunted. Uh, In fact, a common joke among Gremlin critics was, hey, what happened to the rest of your car? The Gremlin didn't boast any interesting technological advancements, which isn't a surprise because AMC was really rushing to get into the subcompact market and they didn't have a lot of money to spare on that kind of thing. Heck, even the Hornet was relying on an older chassis and other parts from an earlier AMC vehicle called the Rambler American. So the Gremlin was inheriting hand-me-downs that were already hand-me-downs at this point. There were a couple of different versions of the Gremlin. Uh, Some of them were two-seater cars, and in those there wasn't even a hatchback because there was no way to lift up the back windshield. It was, you know, a a solid part of the car. So if you had luggage, you would actually have to open up one of the two side doors and slide a seat up and then put your luggage in the back that way because there was no rear access to the vehicle. Now, the four-seater Gremlins had a hinged back window, so you could lift that up to get to the little storage space. The back seat, however, was super close to the front seat. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of space, so it had to be. So you might be able to transport, you know, someone who's four foot taller or shorter. But beyond that, it would probably be a little claustrophobic for someone to ride in the back of a gremlin. The launch on April Fool's Day might have been an indicator that AMC was aware of how awkward and you know, kind of ugly the Gremlin was, but it also meant the Gremlin debuted a half year ahead of other subcompacts like the Pinto and Vega. The Gremlin would sell okay. Like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily a runaway success, but it definitely wasn't a failure either. However, it does frequently show up on worst car lists. When we come back, more of the worst cars of all time. But first, let's take a quick break. All right, y'all, let's talk about America for a second. The country has a pretty wild reputation, both internally here in America and around the world. Like, if I say, what do you think of when I say America? Chances are at least some of the things that will come to mind are over-the-top displays of excess and perhaps even macho patriotism. You know, the America kind of America. And that brings us to the Hummer H2. All right, to understand this story, we actually have to back up a little bit. There was this company, AM General, and it specializes in building heavy-duty vehicles. And they got a contract to begin building out military transport vehicles called Humvees in the mid-1980s. And the Humvee's purpose was essentially to take on the same sort of role that the Jeep had done in the past, namely transporting equipment and people behind the front lines. So 
In other words, it was not meant to be a combat vehicle necessarily, but more of a, you know, logistics vehicle. Anyway, one day, Arnold Schwarzenegger sees some Humvees in a military convoy. I think he was shooting kindergarten cop at the time. And he says, I want one of those. Except he does it, you know, his way. I can't, I'm one of those people, I cannot do an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. I don't know why I'm saying this to you. You clearly know I can't based upon what happened just mere seconds ago. Anyway, you get it. Military operations like Desert Shield and Desert Storm in the early to mid-90s meant that a lot of folks had seen tons of footage of military action, and this kind of had a a groundswell of support for a civilian version of the Humvee. And AM General was already considering doing that before this, but then decided, okay, yeah, it's time for us to get into the consumer space and to make a consumer vehicle version of the Humvee. This would be known as the Hummer. Now, these would have a few more comforts installed in them, you know, stuff like air conditioning that wouldn't be in the bare-bones version of the vehicle that AM General sold to the military. And this was the Hummer that would later become known as the Hummer H1. General Motors purchased the brand from AM General in 1999. However, AM General would continue to actually make the vehicles. GM began working on the follow-up to the H1 design, and that would be our ostentatious H2. The Hummer H2 uh, was a large SUV that took its design cues from some of the chonky military aspects of the Humvee. So while the H1 was a military vehicle that had been adapted to become a civilian car. The H2 was an SUV that was designed to look kind of like a military vehicle. GM used modified frames that it produced for some of its heavy truck lines to serve as the base for the H2. And, uh, you know, the H2 was a monster of a vehicle. It weighed in at around 6,400 pounds or more than 2,900 kilograms. At the time, that meant that the EPA actually didn't have fuel economy standards for a vehicle the size of the H2 because there weren't any other ones. So, like, the EPA had not created regulations for that kind of vehicle, which meant that, you know, there weren't any rules for it. So it wasn't breaking rules because there were no rules to break. Uh, And it fell to various publishers to test the H2 and check on its fuel economy. And um, it was not economical. Depending on the publisher, the outcome was that the H2 appeared to make around 10 miles to the gallon of fuel. Uh, Some of them had it as low as 9, some of them had it almost 11, but right in that area, which is pretty atrocious. This was at the same time when America was involved in more conflicts in the Middle East, and of course, that was frequently tied up with America's need for oil. And here we have this vehicle that would be one of the biggest gas guzzlers on the road being promoted as something we should embrace. Uh, There was also a lot of opposition coming up to the military operations that were going on in the Middle East. So a vehicle that harkens back to military design and guzzles a lot of fuel was not the best PR move GM could have done. On top of that, The size of the vehicle meant it was just an obnoxious car. I mean, it didn't fit well on narrow roads or in parking spaces. I can't tell you how many times I saw one of these things spanning more than one parking space. 
Anyway, the public reaction to the H2 was generally negative and really hurt GM's reputation. Uh, that is outside of the H2's fan base. And there were fans of the H2, folks who, you know, felt their freedom to choose an inefficient, obnoxious car was more important than making choices that benefit the common good. But hey, we're all living through another age that really nails home the fact that there are plenty of folks out there who just don't care for anyone beyond themselves. But that's me getting off track. Let's let's move on with more cars. Uh, in fact, let's talk about another vehicle that GM made. This one kind of dovetails with the H2. This one precedes the H2. In fact, a lot of the, the story of this car plus the H2 makes for quite the double whammy for GM. And I'm talking about GM's EV1. That was an electric car that came out in 1997. It would be the first mass-manufactured electric vehicle from a modern manufacturer in America, which I know that's a lot of qualifiers, but, you know, you sit there and think about it that way, and you're like, wow, that's actually really progressive. And on that note, my hat is off to General Motors for pushing to get back into electric cars. I mean, you got to have to remember that this was, first of all, this was not the first attempt for a late 20th century manufacturer to make an electric vehicle. And of course, electric cars predate cars that run on internal combustion engines. But electric vehicles had failed to get a lot of support, and GM was hoping to change that. Maybe. They certainly would fall short. I, I'm not even sure how sincere their hope was. So General Motors had shown off an electric concept car in the early 90s, and that concept got a lot of attention. So the company went ahead and started to design and then manufacture the EV1, but they chose not to sell the EV1. Instead, they would only lease the EV1. You could not purchase it. You couldn't even purchase it at the end of your lease. You, you could try to renew your lease, but that's all you could do. Further, they limited the markets in which customers could actually lease the cars. I'm pretty sure it was California and maybe Arizona, and that was it. And the rest of the states, you could not get one of these. The original batch of EV1 vehicles had lead-acid batteries, which, while a proven technology, were not able to supply much of a driving range. Uh, in fact, the EV1 could travel approximately 60 miles before it needed to recharge. The second generation of EV1s also used lead-acid batteries. They had an increased range of 100 miles on a single charge, and a later upgrade to nickel-metal hydride batteries bumped that up again to 160-mile driving range, though those types of batteries actually took longer to recharge as well. The battery technology was one of the big limiting factors. GM also never went into wider mass production of the vehicles on a truly large scale. And the company said the reason they did that is because there weren't enough people to purchase the vehicles to do it. Proponents of electric cars said they were on waiting lists trying to get a lease for one of these, but they were told that there was very little chance of them actually getting an EV1. And, you know, that kind of starts to seem like GM's story and the fans' stories contradict each other. The company says there's not enough demand, and the people are saying there's not enough supply. Now, I don't know if there really was a limit in customer demand, like it may be that the people who are demanding were few, they were just noisy. Uh, and there have also been tons of conspiracy theories suggesting that GM was worried about, you know, electric vehicles cannibalizing the sale of spare parts for internal combustion vehicles, that it would hurt GM's business if they went from internal combustion to electric. 
There was also the perception that the profit margin on the EV1 wouldn't be nearly as good as the profit margin for internal combustion engine vehicles. So in other words, GM would make less money on a per sale basis. And so from a business perspective, it made little sense for GM to continue supporting the initiative. So GM stopped the program and they recalled EV1s once all the leases were up and they reportedly destroyed all the vehicles. And that's the double whammy that I mentioned earlier. GM was destroying electric vehicles and simultaneously getting into the business of marketing a gas-guzzling monstrosity in the H2. So it was, as the kids say, a bad look. And it didn't do GM's reputation any favors. By the way, based on what I could find out about the EV1, it sounds like the folks who leased one really liked the car. Uh, this wasn't a case of a vehicle performing poorly or breaking down, but rather a car that has a bad rap because of the business circumstances around the car, namely that GM went into the EV1 a little half-hearted, limiting it to leases and such, and the company then went on to push the H2. Next, rather than talk about a specific vehicle, I want to talk about a car company and the decision to try and cheat the system, which meant a bunch of vehicles would end up being a huge problem. And we're talking Volkswagen here, folks. So it's the 2010s. And among the cars that Volkswagen produced at that time were several models that ran on diesel fuel rather than gasoline. Diesel engines are, generally speaking, more efficient than gasoline-powered engines. And as a consequence of that, diesel engines generate fewer carbon dioxide emissions than a gasoline engine will, assuming both engines are similarly powerful and handling similar loads, right? Like if you're talking about a really efficient small gasoline engine and you compare it to an inefficient large diesel engine, your mileage varies, right? But they do put out less carbon dioxide. However, they also put out more nitrogen oxide. And that's a contributing factor to stuff like smog and acid rain. So it is a pollutant. But the world was adopting tougher emission standards. And Volkswagen vehicles appeared to perform really well and were well under the limits set by those standards. Like, Volkswagen cars did astonishingly well. Diesel seemed to be a good alternative to gasoline because of that. And Volkswagen was championing the idea, you know, really talking it up. And then the International Council on Clean Transportation comes along. And the organization had received reports on discrepancies in emissions from Volkswagen diesel vehicles. So this would be around 2014. The ICCT decided to test some Volkswagen vehicles in the United States, largely because the U.S. standards were more strict than most other places, and yet Volkswagens seemed to pass with flying colors. So the ICCT discovered that their data, which was collected in on-road testing situations, wasn't matching up with the data that was found in the California Air Resources Board during lab tests. The field tests that the ICCT conducted showed that the Volkswagen vehicles generated as much as 35 times the limit set by the emissions standard of nitrogen oxide. So that happened on the road, but in the lab, there didn't seem to be a problem. The cars were under the limit. The investigators first thought they had screwed up in the testing, like someone forgot to carry a one or something, or that they had misinterpreted the readings on the field equipment. Because a discrepancy that huge 
is hard to explain. But after multiple tests, the teams realized that their data reflected what they were seeing in reality. The cars were emitting way more nitrogen oxide when they were on the road versus then when they were in the lab. And it took more investigations to figure out what was happening, and it came down to what ended up being called a, quote, defeat device, end quote, meaning it was meant to defeat testing equipment. Now, this was not a physical device. Instead, it was some software that would make some changes in vehicle operation during a test environment compared to when it would be used on the road. So from a very high level, here's what was going on. When a diesel Volkswagen vehicle detected that it was being run in test mode, it would essentially shut down some of the engine output. It would reduce it dramatically so that way it would produce fewer nitrogen oxide emissions. And since an emissions test doesn't actually involve driving the vehicle around, the car could operate and essentially feed misleading data to the person who was administering the test. When the test was over and you were ready to drive your car off and hit the road, it would switch back into normal operation. So you might wonder, well, why wouldn't you just keep it at the lower output settings in the first place? Well, the cars would have less oomph to them. They would handle and perform less well under, you know, those conditions. So Volkswagen said, let's just, you know, cheat on the test. Oh, and apparently the company had been doing that since as far back as 2009, with around half a million cars in the United States operating with that particular system in place, and millions more in other parts of the world. Actually, I, I think of this whole scenario as being kind of a, a fun analogy to one really weird aspect of quantum physics. See, when the Volkswagens were under test conditions, you get one set of outcomes. But then when you're out of test conditions, you get a different set of outcomes. That's kind of similar to the effect of observation in quantum mechanics. If you allow a quantum effect to occur without observing it or measuring it, it might behave one way, but then you observe it and it behaves a totally different way because the act of observing affects the observed. So maybe Volkswagen was just trying to give us a lesson in quantum. The whole thing got the name of Dieselgate, and to this day, Volkswagen is still kind of dealing with the consequences of that scandal. When we come back, we'll talk about a few oddball vehicles that sometimes also make these lists. But first, another break. At the beginning of this episode, I talked about the Octo Auto, that strange eight-wheeled car, but there are a few other weird vehicles that merit mention in an episode about worst cars of all time. After all, there's the story about Waldo Waterman and the Aerobile, for example. Okay, so, or Aerobile if you prefer, because it's supposed to be like automobile. Um, this one is kind of cheating a little bit because the Aerobile was more of a roadworthy airplane rather than a car that could also fly. But the whole pitch was that the Aerobile would be a personal flying machine, and Waldo built it way back in the 1930s. In the air, it looked like a plane with a pretty small you know, body and very wide wings. The wingspan was nearly 40 feet wide, and it had a rear-mounted propeller at the back of the car. But clearly that would not be suitable for driving on the roadways. Your your wingspan would be way too much. So you would have to detach the wings, and then you could drive the, the base of this vehicle around. 
the idea being that you could keep the wings in, say, a hangar at an airstrip, and you could, you know, use this as your vehicle to drive you to and from the airstrip, you know, between your airstrip and your home. And then once you got to the airstrip, you would attach the wings. They connected onto the car uh, with a little pin that you would insert into some, uh, to the wings and the, the car to hold it all together, like a single pin. If that fell out, your wings fall off. Um, but they were designed not to fall out. It was just one of those things where it's like, wow, that's a single little tiny point of failure. And I thought it was kind of crazy. But here's the thing. It actually could fly. I mean, it, it flew on the same principle as an airplane, really. And you couldn't just, you know, drive it around and then take off. Like it wasn't like a, a VTOL vehicle or something. You needed those wings and you needed a really long, you know, airstrip in order to, to get up speed and take off. But it would work. Waldo wasn't able to find any buyers, however, and he only made about a half dozen of them before he ultimately gave up. It seems a shame to have it on a list of worst cars because it actually did work. It just wasn't practical and no one bought one. Then again, if people had bought them, this would be a very different podcast episode today. I'd probably be talking about the worst ideas in tech history and why there's wreckage everywhere. Let's go from flying cars to a car that looked like a little tiny spaceship. And I'm talking about the Peel Trident. That's P-E-E-L Trident. Uh, Peel Manufacturing is a company that's on the Isle of Man. And it was best known for making fiberglass and like fiberglass bodies for things like motorcycles and boats. But it also made a couple of land vehicles when it decided to kind of try and get into the car business. One of those was called the Peel P50, sometimes listed as the smallest car to ever go into full production. as a truly, truly tiny car. But I want to talk about the Trident. See, the P50 was so tiny, it only had one seat in it. But the Trident, which was only slightly less tiny than the P50, was technically a two-seater, assuming you and your passenger didn't mind getting real up close and personal on your car ride. And it's another three-wheeled car, like the Robin Reliant, except this time, the single wheel is in the back of the vehicle, and the, the two wheels are in the front. So you would steer with the two wheels in the front, and it's a rear-wheel drive vehicle, so that single wheel in the back would be getting the power from the drivetrain and providing the automotive force to move forward. And like I said... The Trident looked a little bit like a tiny flying saucer. If you've never seen one, you should definitely look up pictures because it's adorable. It kind of looks like the sort of toy cars you could buy for a very privileged kid. The kind that I always wanted when I was growing up, but my family couldn't afford it. So I never got one of those. It's fine. It's totally fine. I mean, I don't drive to this day and maybe that's why. It's totally fine. No, seriously, it's fine. <laughs> but it, it looks a bit like it's a little go-kart that has a clear plastic bubble for a roof. Uh, there are no doors on the Trident. Like, you don't open a door to get in and out. You actually have to lift the top of the car up. It's hinged at the front of the vehicle, so toward the front bumper. And you can lift up on the big plastic bubble, and the whole front, you know, top half of the car folds up, and you do that to get in and out. Uh, and then when you get in, you just lower the cockpit back down around you. There's a little kind of window type hole on the side of the cockpit. I think it's on both sides, but I've only seen videos from the driver's side. It's definitely on that side. But this is what allows some air circulation so that you don't 
you know, drive around inside a sealed plastic bubble and slowly lose out of air. Uh, but then you also have to remember that that little pocket of air, it's coming in from very close to the ground outside on the road. So you're probably going to get a lot of fumes that way too. The engine is a humble one. It was a 50cc, actually I think a 49cc engine with 4.2 horsepower when it first came out. Uh, but then the car is so tiny and so light. I mean, it weighs around like 330 pounds that even though the engine is pretty weak, it's usually more than enough to coax the little car up to speed. And I've seen different claims as to what the top speed of these vehicles happen to be. And to be fair, there are a couple different models. There was one that was a little bit more sporty. Um, but the ranges I've seen have been everywhere from around 30 miles per hour to 60 miles per hour. And yeah, 60 miles per hour to be a top speed, that's very slow compared to most cars. But you also have to keep in mind, this thing is very low to the ground. It is very small. And you are typically surrounded by much larger vehicles. So going 60 would be pretty terrifying, I would think. The bubble top also means that on a sunny day, it gets to be pretty toasty in the Trident. It's like, you know, being in a clear plastic tent in a sunny day. But if you're puttering around on an island that's off the coast of England, you probably got cloud cover most of the year, and the Trident might suit your basic needs to just, you know, get some simple shopping done or something. But as a practical car, it kind of falls short. It is still cute as heck, though. All right, how about a car that doesn't have a top at all? Or sides? Back in 1920, there was the Briggs & Stratton Buckboard Flyer. And this thing was terrifying on a whole new level. Uh, it looks a bit like a wooden sled. Like if you think of those wooden sleds that have the, the two skis underneath them, and you know the sled itself is made up of a frame that has slats of wood next to each other, and you sit on the slats of wood, you, you go rushing down the, the hill. The, it looked kind of like that, except instead of the skis, it had you know four wheels, uh, a steering wheel, and a couple of like bucket-style seats on it. Uh, and then there was a fifth wheel. So technically, this was a five-wheel vehicle. The Four of the wheels were in the normal position you would expect on a car. You know, two in the front, two in the back. The fifth of wheel was in uh, the center of the back of the car, and it was lifted off the ground when the car was not in motion. So uh, it was the fifth wheel that actually attached to the Buckboard Flyer's two-horsepower motor. And that could get you up to 25 miles per hour, which, you know, when your bottom is just a couple inches off the pavement is plenty fast, trust me. And here's how it would work. The drive wheel and motor were mounted on a lever, essentially. So you would begin with the wheel and motor elevated above the ground. They would not be making contact with the ground. Uh, you would start the motor, and that would immediately cause the wheel to turn. Uh, there was no throttle. So once the motor started, that wheel would start spinning. There was no way to control your speed. You know, you, you just went at the speed the motor was going. And you would get into the seat of the flyer. So this wheel's spinning, but again, it's not making contact with the ground, so you're not going anywhere yet. So you get into the, the driver's seat, and then you had this lever right next to the driver's seat that you would use, and by pushing on the lever, you would lower the engine and wheel, the drive wheel, until the drive wheel made contact with the ground, and then off you would go. If you wanted to stop, you would need to um, maneuver the lever to lift the drive wheel off the ground, 
and then you could apply the brakes, such as they were. The wheels on the flyer had these little fenders over them, like partial fenders on top of the wheels. And when you applied the brake, it would essentially pull the fenders in toward the wheels, and that was your brake. And again, you had to make sure the drive wheel was off the ground or else, you know, it would just keep on going. Uh, that also means there was no reverse on the flyer, so you better be comfortable with where you're going. Uh, there was, however, a control on the steering pole, like the steering wheel was on. You could call it a column, but that would be a bit grandiose for what it was. But there was a little control there, a little hand lever. And if you flip that, then you would kill the fuel going to the engine and it would sputter out. So you could turn the engine off from the driver's seat um, and you wouldn't have to, uh, you know, lift the wheel up and come to a stop that way. You could do it the other way, too. It would mean that if you wanted to start back up, you'd have to lift the wheel up off the ground and go back there and, and hand start the motor, however. The motor was the same type that had been used for motorized bicycles around the time, and it could, according to the company, travel up to 80 miles per gallon of fuel. The thing that made me the most surprised by it is this darn thing was street legal. Like, you could drive this on the roads and it wasn't against the law, and that's terrifying to me. It would be against the law now, but, but back then... They were like, yeah, sure, go for it. It's 1920, you know, the roaring 20s. Let's let's roar in a sled on wheels with a bicycle motor attached to it. Okay, in the last episode, I badmouthed the East German Trabant. Uh, now it's West Germany's time to shine or sink, as it may be. Our final vehicle in this list is the Amphicar Model 770. The 770. This car was one of several boat cars. Now, I don't mean a boat car in the sense of a car that handled like a boat, but rather a car that could also be a boat. So the Amphicar was meant to travel by land or by water. It was the first amphibious vehicle made for private customers, and it launched, figuratively and literally, in 1961. An engineer named Hans Trippel was responsible for the Amphicar, having previously modified a personal vehicle to serve as an amphibious car, with limited success. The car looks like a classic vehicle from the late 50s era. It's kind of similar to like a 1959 Cadillac because it actually has those fins in the back, but it's much shorter than a Cadillac would be. Uh, the car sits a little higher than most cars do. Like there's more ground clearance with this type of car. That's good because there are a, a set of two propellers that are tucked in back below the rear bumper of the vehicle. Um, Triple worked with a company called Quant Manufacturing, uh, and they marketed the Amphicar for the American market. The Model 770 was meant to indicate the speeds at which the car could travel. It could move up to 7 miles per hour in the water or 70 miles per hour on land. Going from land to water meant having to put the engine in neutral and then use a separate control to engage the propellers and direct the drive power toward the propellers rather than toward the wheels. Uh, the front wheels would still act as kind of rudimentary rudders, so that's how you would steer. You would continue to use the regular steering wheel in the water. When you were coming out of the water, you would have to switch the propellers off before they fully emerged from the water, because without the resistance of water, the propellers would spin so quickly they could damage the transmission. 
The plan was originally to produce 25,000 of the Amphicar Model 770, but the public reception wasn't super positive. Critics said the car handled like a mediocre car on land and a mediocre boat in the water. Uh, some people said that it handled like a boat on land and a car in the water. Hardy har har. They also pointed out that a few hours of water use would mean that you would have to apply grease to multiple areas uh, in the vehicle. You'd have to grease different parts of it in order to just have routine maintenance. So if you were to go out uh, for a day on the lake, for example, the next day would probably be spent in your garage greasing up a car. It's also a rear-wheel drive vehicle, so getting out of the water can be tricky. If it's a steep incline, it would be really hard to get there because until your rear wheels have traction, you're not getting any, you know, any any force there, right? Like the front wheels do nothing other than steer, so they can't help you go up a steep incline. So that made it kind of tricky and just limited the the use case for these vehicles. So while the company had planned to make 25,000 of them, uh, the actual numbers were less than 4,000. By the way, if you visit Walt Disney World's Disney Springs area, you can actually take a ride in an Amphicar. Uh, you can even go out on the water. In fact, that's what it's all about. You can take a tour, a 20-minute tour uh, of the water on an Amphicar. The tours leave from the Boathouse restaurant. And like pretty much everything at Disney World, it is expensive. A 20-minute trip will cost you $125. However, that's per car. So you can have up to four people ride on a tour. If you split it between the four of you, maybe you think, oh, well, this is, this is worth the experience of going out on the water in a car. I've seen them while I've been hanging out at Disney, but I have never actually ridden in one. So I don't know what the experience is like from a personal level. And there we go. There's some more cars that often appear on worst cars list. There are tons more. Some of them, I feel, are just like the journalist grinding an axe because they personally found a particular vehicle to look ugly or something. But others like have legit issues with them. So, you know, I didn't cover like the Ford Mustang 2, for example, which was severely underpowered compared to the original Mustang, largely because we were in an oil crisis in the 70s and it would have been political suicide to have a car that would perform at the level of the Mustang. But anyway, that'll have to wait for some other future episode. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in Tech Stuff, please reach out to me and let me know. The best way to do that is to use Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.